On today's Exploring History podcast, we'll look at a single year in American history in which several pivotal events had a profound impact on our country and on the world. Welcome to Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. As we study history, we see that particular years are memorable for the extraordinary events that took place in them. History is much more than dates, but historians are correct in pointing out the significance of certain years. The most significant year was the year in which Christ was born. His birth began a world revolution that continues today. We can't pinpoint the exact year of his birth, but the fact that we characterize the years as B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of the Lord, indicates the revolution that he brought. The year 1517, when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses for debate to the door of the Wittenberg Church, brought important developments in the Protestant Reformation that changed the practice of Christianity in ways that still affect us today. For the British, the Norman invasion of 1066 radically changed life in Britain. Certain specific dates, such as the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and the terrorist attacks on the United States on September 11, 2001, will always carry deep meaning for Americans. Today, I want to review some of the significant events of a single tumultuous year in recent American history and discuss how those events affected our country. That year is 1968. I turned 16 years old that year, so I lived through what I'll be talking about. To provide some context, the decade of the 1960s was a time of great social upheaval in the United States, a decade quite different from the 1950s. The 60s began with the election of John F. Kennedy as president. Kennedy represented a younger generation of leadership. An emerging youth culture had great influence on all of society. Many Americans openly challenged accepted morality and religious belief. The Supreme Court made decisions that changed the way our country operates. Scientists made great strides in research and development, exemplified by the beginning of the manned American space program. The country faced a number of crises in the early 1960s, such as the Bay of Pigs fiasco in Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was probably the closest that the United States and the Soviet Union ever came to war against each other. America also witnessed a more determined effort to achieve civil rights for black Americans and the reaction against that movement by those who wanted to maintain the racial status quo. As the decade progressed, American involvement in Vietnam increased, which ultimately cost tens of thousands of American lives and which became the dividing issue in American politics. On November 22, 1963, one of those unforgettable dates of infamy, President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. The shocking death of the young and popular president darkened the mood of the country. But let's move on to the critical year of 1968. 
The United States suffered an international embarrassment on January 23, 1968, when North Korea captured the USS Pueblo, an intelligence-gathering vessel, and its crew. The U.S. demanded their release, but North Korea refused. America was caught between going in after the ship and crew and perhaps causing further conflict or the death of the crew, or pursuing their release by diplomatic channels and appearing to be powerless. The Pueblo incident lingered throughout the rest of the year and became an issue in the election campaign that fall. North Korea finally released the crew on December 22, 1968, but North Korea still has the ship today. January 31st is New Year's Day in Vietnam. The Vietnamese call it Tet. On January 31, 1968, Communist North Vietnamese Army regulars and Communist South Vietnamese Viet Cong forces attacked American positions in several places throughout South Vietnam. The Tet Offensive caused significant American losses, but U.S. forces regrouped and launched a counteroffensive that inflicted even heavier casualties on the Communists. The Communists actually lost the Tet Offensive in military terms, but decisive damage was done to the entire war effort in American public opinion. The American public had, for the most part, supported President Lyndon Johnson and the buildup of American forces in Vietnam, even though a small percentage of Americans opposed the war. After the Tet Offensive, many more Americans began to wonder if the effort in Vietnam was worth the cost. Public opinion began to turn sharply against the war. President Johnson's approval rating fell to 35%. Peace negotiations between North Vietnam on one side and South Vietnam and the United States on the other began in May of 1968 in Paris, France. The talks bogged down almost immediately with petty disputes. For instance, the two sides had a hard time even agreeing on the shape of the negotiating table. The North Vietnamese did not want to acknowledge the South Vietnamese government as legitimate, and South Vietnam did not want to acknowledge or include the Viet Cong. Talks continued on and off for years while the fighting continued. The division in America over Vietnam was played out in the Democratic Party. A mere four years after the Democrats had enjoyed an overwhelming victory in Lyndon Johnson's 1964 landslide win over Republican Barry Goldwater for president, and the Democrats had also come to dominate Congress, the Democratic Party began to splinter. In late 1967, Minnesota Democratic Senator Eugene McCarthy announced an almost unprecedented challenge to an incumbent president in his own party, when he announced a bid for the Democratic presidential nomination on a clearly anti-war platform. McCarthy pledged to end American involvement in Vietnam and to seek terms for peace. McCarthy was not well known before the primary campaign began, but he quickly became the standard-bearer for Democrats who were dissatisfied with Johnson's handling of the war. In the New Hampshire presidential primary in early March of 1968, Johnson won with 48% of the vote, but McCarthy received an astounding 42%.
Americans saw McCarthy's narrow loss in New Hampshire as a step toward ultimate victory in the November presidential election. On Sunday night, March 31, 1968, President Johnson delivered a televised speech to the nation. He announced that he was going to cut back on American bombing of North Vietnam and seek a negotiated peace. Military victory was no longer the goal. Now the official policy was to see how the U.S. could get out of Vietnam in the most honorable way possible. Then President Johnson concluded his speech with a surprise announcement. He said that he would neither seek nor accept the Democratic Party's nomination for another term. The man who had achieved his goal of becoming president and had achieved the most far-reaching legislative agenda since the New Deal with his Great Society programs had been turned away from seeking re-election by opposition within his own party over the Vietnam War. On Thursday, April 4, 1968, a mere four days after Johnson's speech and surprise announcement, Martin Luther King, Jr. was assassinated as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. King had gone to Memphis to intervene in a sanitation workers' strike. Following the assassination, riots broke out in 60 American cities, as black Americans expressed their fears and frustration in reaction to the death of one of the most respected and eloquent leaders of the civil rights movement. After a worldwide manhunt, escaped convict James Earl Ray was arrested and charged with the crime. Ray pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Once in prison, however, Ray almost immediately changed his story, and said that he was pressured into pleading guilty. Theories of a conspiracy against King that had used James Earl Ray as the trigger man have abounded to this day. Johnson's withdrawal left the contest for the Democratic presidential nomination wide open. Vice President Hubert Humphrey announced his candidacy, but Johnson's record was a huge albatross around his neck. Robert F. Kennedy the late president's younger brother, generated the greatest excitement. Robert Kennedy had been elected to the U.S. Senate from New York in 1964. Skeptics noted that Kennedy had refrained from a direct challenge to Johnson until McCarthy's performance in New Hampshire had shown that the president was vulnerable. Lyndon Johnson and the Kennedy family had long disliked each other, and the senator's candidacy rekindled all the old Kennedy-Johnson rivalry. Senator Kennedy was a huge favorite in Democratic primaries, both for his own positions and as the bearer of his late brother's legacy. On June 5, 1968, two months after King was assassinated, Senator Robert Kennedy won the important California Democratic primary which clearly gave him momentum for winning the party's presidential nomination. As Kennedy left the victory celebration through the kitchen area of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, he was shot by a young Palestinian, Sirhan Sirhan. Sirhan objected to Kennedy's support for Israel. Senator Kennedy died the next day. Robert was the third Kennedy brother to die a violent death. The oldest brother, Joe, whom many believed was the most promising politician in the family, had been killed in World War II. 
It was somehow ironic that Robert was killed not for his anti-war position, nor for his liberal domestic agenda, but for his support of Israel, which had become standard American policy that was supported by both parties. Kennedy's death put Vice President Humphrey in the lead for the Democratic nomination. Eugene McCarthy's campaign had lost momentum when Senator Kennedy entered the race. By the time the Democrats assembled in Chicago for their convention in early August of 1968, Humphrey had the nomination sewn up, but he also had serious additional baggage as the representative of the discredited administration. In addition, people opposed to Johnson's policies had targeted the convention for demonstrations. Outside the convention, thousands of demonstrators clashed with thousands of police and National Guardsmen. After being provoked by demonstrators, the police waded into the crowd and used excessive violence to stop the protests while the marchers chanted, The whole world's watching, as indeed it was. Chicago Mayor Richard Daley was seen giving orders to the police from the convention floor. After Humphrey was nominated for president, Maine Senator Edmund Muskie received the vice presidential nomination. Shortly thereafter, a much calmer Miami Beach hosted the Republican convention and witnessed a remarkable comeback with the nomination of Richard Nixon as their presidential nominee. After losing to Kennedy in 1960, Nixon had run for the governorship of California in 1962, but had lost. In his remarks to a press conference after that defeat, a tired and bitter Nixon said that this was going to be his last press conference because, as he said, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Nixon returned to private life, but he supported Barry Goldwater in 1964 and received a positive reception from Republicans as he gave speeches around the country following the 64 election. Nixon continued to rebuild his political reputation and decided to try for the presidency again in 1968. Republicans supported him overwhelmingly, and he received the nomination. Nixon chose Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew as his running mate, primarily because of the tough stance Agnew had taken against demonstrators in Baltimore. During the campaign, Nixon said that he had a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, but he did not want to divulge it during the campaign. One of the main themes of the Republican campaign was law and order, which was a response to rising crime rates and widespread looting in cities. Nixon's opponents feared that the phrase law and order actually meant repression and police brutality. Nixon claimed to speak for the silent majority of Americans who did not demonstrate in the streets and who supported their country and their government. The 1968 presidential campaign would have been dramatic enough if it had just been between the Democrat Humphrey, representing the discredited sitting administration, and the Republican Nixon, who had emerged from the political ashes. But there was more to the campaign than just those two. The potential spoiler role in the election was taken by Alabama Governor George Wallace. A lifelong Democrat, Wallace ran for president as an independent in 1968, charging, as he put it, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the Republican and Democratic parties. In his early political career, Wallace had been a staunch racial segregationist, 
stating in his inaugural address as governor of Alabama, segregation today, segregation now, segregation forever. By 1968, however, he had moderated his position on race. Wallace ran on a strong defense of states' rights and pledged to win the war in Vietnam. His running mate was World War II hero and former general Curtis LeMay. The presidential contest was too close to call between Humphrey and Nixon on the basis of opinion polls before the voting took place. The results were not clear until the morning after Election Day. Out of 73 million votes cast, Nixon had a plurality of about 500,000 votes over Humphrey and a 43.4% to 42.7% margin in the popular votes. Nixon won a clear 301 to 191 victory in electoral votes. George Wallace received 9.9 million votes, 13.5% of the total, and 46 electoral votes, all from southern states. Humphrey carried most of the Northeast, while Nixon swept almost all of the midsection of the country and the West. The year 1968 saw America change its goal in Vietnam from finding a way to win to finding a way to get out. Lyndon Johnson went from a huge landslide win in 1964 to not even attempting a re-election bid, while Richard Nixon scored a comeback from previous defeats to be elected president. Two prominent figures were gunned down, and sections of dozens of cities were burned down. Protesters criticized the more liberal of the two major parties for not being liberal enough. America seemed shaken to its roots, and now Richard Nixon had the task of leading the country back from some of its most difficult days. But 1968 ended with a vivid reminder of who is eternal and who is in charge of the universe, even through hard times. In December 1968, the crew of NASA's Apollo 8 space mission, Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman, became the first humans to orbit the moon. The purpose of the mission was to orbit the moon, not to land on the moon. On Christmas Eve, the crew made a live television broadcast back to Earth. Before they began their trip to the moon, NASA officials told the astronauts that for that broadcast, they would have the largest audience ever to listen to a human voice up to that time. Borman later recalled, The only instructions that we got from NASA was to do something appropriate. They did just that. An estimated 500 million to 1 billion people around the world watched and listened. At the conclusion of their broadcast, the astronauts took turns reading from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 10. Here's how that broadcast sounded. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered in together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. The year 1968 brought tragedy upon tragedy and reversal upon reversal. And yet, our country survived. As we begin the new year of 2023, and as we look back upon the difficult times that we have endured recently, let us again put our faith and hope in God, because He's got the whole world in His hands. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thanks for exploring history with me today. And Happy New Year. This has been Exploring History with Ray Knotgrass, a production of Knotgrass History. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review so that we can reach more people with our episodes. If you want to learn about new homeschool resources and opportunities from Knotgrass History, you can sign up for our email newsletter at exploringhistorypodcast.com. This program was produced by me, Titus Anderson. Thanks for listening.